so as this epistle unfolds and we continue to, uh, to see Paul's pastoral side, he addresses two issues that uh, had been developing in the Thessalonian church resulting from their misunderstanding of his teaching about the second coming of Christ. So he spent these months with them, however long it was. Remember we talked about the fact that uh, we weren't sure how long he was there. Scholars can't quite pinpoint how long he was there. But uh, they did get into some instruction. They did get into some teaching about how to live the Christian life. And apparently he talked about the second coming. And they uh, misunderstood his teaching about the second coming of Christ. So some of the Thessalonians had become so over-exuberant and over-zealous about expecting Christ's return, they'd gotten slack in their daily responsibilities. And they were so lazy that they weren't representing Christ well to their employers who were outside the faith. And, and Paul bluntly told them uh, to get to work, earn your own way, don't depend on others to provide your daily bread, provide for yourself, mind your own business, and, and present a solid witness to those who are living outside the faith, who are prospects for salvation, who have not yet come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Also, many of them became concerned about what happened to their loved ones who had died since Paul left them. What will happen to those who died before Christ returns? Uh, and remember, they thought that Christ would return at any minute. That he could come back at any minute. And they lived their lives with that sort of anticipation. So Paul answered their questions about their loved ones. And in doing so, he presented this text we're reading this morning and looking at this morning that Isabella's already read. And he presented hope that brings comfort. Hope that brings comfort. I want to read this again from the New Living Translation. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with Him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are living when the Lord returns will not meet Him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then will we be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another. My translation says, comfort one another with these words. So what do we hear here? First of all, hope that brings comfort is grounded in God's truth. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul did not want them to be ignorant. He did not want them to be uninformed. He wanted to make sure that they were up to speed. He wanted to make sure they understood. And he wanted to clear all of this up, all of their misunderstandings. So he refers to the dead as those who sleep. And he's not talking about soul sleep as some cults talk about death. He's talking about the end of life. And note these two words at the end of verse 13. I don't know what your translation says, but these two words in my translation are no hope. No hope. What sad words. Paul points out that those without Christ experience sorrow because they have no hope of ever seeing their loved ones again. 
He's not discounting human emotions that normally come, uh, that come normally, that come naturally when a believer loses a loved one. Grief is the price that we pay and the journey we walk for having loved someone so deeply. Those without Christ do not have the anticipation of ever seeing departed loved ones again. To them, death is the end. To them, the grave is final. Once you are lowered into the grave, then that's it in their minds. And they see no hope of life beyond the grave. How horrible is a grief that is hopeless. How horrible is that kind of despair How intense is that kind of sadness that doesn't have hope? In contrast, believers don't fear death in the same way that the world fears death. We view death through the lens of knowing what Jesus has done. And we know that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And as we walk through this valley of grief, we know that the God of hope is with us reminding us that death is not the end and that we will see our loved ones again. What Paul was about to share came directly from God, he said, as we already looked at in verse 15. He says, by the word of the Lord. Now this is important because there's a lot of different philosophies in that culture, in that society, in that day. Many philosophers and other people uh, in our day and time, speculate what happens after death. And God tells us, God's Word tells us, very plainly, very clearly, what happens after death. This was not Paul's opinion. This was not Paul's speculation. This was not an educated guess. This was not a, a clever interpretation. God revealed these details about the return of Christ to Paul, and Paul desired to help the Thessalonians and us address our concerns and and have words of comfort and words of hope. Apparently, these were new revelations concerning the second coming and the resurrection. Paul had to leave town so quickly under the cover of darkness because he was in danger. He probably didn't get to finish this doctrine and teaching uh, these folks about what was going to happen. And then they had questions. He wanted them informed. So what is the basis of our hope? Well, second... Hope that brings comfort is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. What what has Jesus done that abolishes our fear of death? The solid foundation for our hope is this fact of history. Jesus died and rose again. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, once and for all, and for all final, and once and for all, final payment for our past, present, and future sins has been made, and we can have absolute confidence that nothing stands between us and the God of Heaven. When Jesus died, He bore the horrors of death. He bore the agony of death. He endured the pain of death. Pastor Gerald Harris put it this way. It is though death used up all its power in putting the Son of God to death so that it does not have the power to conquer us permanently. It is as though Christ took the sting of death into His own body and formed a vaccine so that death can no longer destroy God's people. That's why Paul wrote, O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? For sin, the sting that causes death, will be gone, he wrote. And the law which reveals our sins will no longer be our judge. How we thank God for all of this. 
It is He who makes us victorious through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the victory over death through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have hope. We have confidence because Jesus defeated sin on the cross, but also because He conquered death when He arose from the grave. And as Paul told the Thessalonians as a result, if we, you see in 14, for if we believe, that word if in the Greek, I don't know why we translate it if in English, that word is since. So since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. Now note the words Paul used here to describe believers. To describe believers, Paul used the word sleep. To describe Jesus, he used the word death. Jesus used this same word, the word translated sleep, in John chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. You remember what was happening there? In the resurrection of Jesus, of Lazarus rather, in the, in the, he was talking about the passing of Lazarus. He uses this word sleep. Paul was very careful not to say or give any indication that the soul went to sleep at death. He made it very clear that the soul of a believer at the point of death goes to be with the Lord. And God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now note what it says here in this verse. Those who are with him. He's talking about the family of God. He's talking about followers of Christ. He's talking about believers. He's talking about those who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. He very clearly says, with him. So what is Paul saying? If we place our trust in Jesus and receive his free gift of eternal life, then our soul goes to be with the Lord. And at the point of death, we are absent from the body, this old shell, this old human body, this tent, this temporary dwelling. We're absent from the body and we are present with the Lord. Now this too is a word of comfort. God brings with him those who trusted in Jesus. Those who are with Jesus. And on the authority of the Word of God, we know what will happen. Jesus Christ will one day return and bring His people with Him. Third, hope that brings comfort is based on the return of Jesus. As you look at verse 16. Hope that brings comfort is based on the return of Jesus. People often ask, are we living in the last days? Are we seeing prophecy fulfilled right before our eyes? For example, Pastor David Jeremiah's latest book is entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? How Tomorrow's Prophecies Foreshadow Today's Problems. He looks at, at how biblical prophecies relate to ten contemporary issues or concerns. He talks about socialism, globalism, pandemics and plagues, economic chaos, the apostasy in the church, apostasy in the church, the encroachment of evil, council culture, spiritual famine, the city of Jerusalem under threat, and the triumph of the gospel. Now as we read Paul's words, especially here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul did not get into anything like that. He, he did not address a timeline. He did not set a date. He did not outline the signs of the times. Interestingly, if you notice in verses 14 and 15 and also in verse 17, he did use the pronoun we. 
making it sound like he thought he would be alive when Christ returned. When Jesus said he was coming back, they took him literally. And they had this expectation and this sense of anticipation. Man, that was going to happen at any moment. He thought he would be alive too. So when Paul addressed the second coming of Christ, when Paul addressed these misunderstandings that these Thessalonian believers had, Paul concentrated on the moment that Christ returns. So what will happen in that moment? Well, look at verse 16 again. Paul outlines four facts about Christ's return in verse 16. First of all, Jesus himself will descend from heaven. Verse 16. Jesus himself will descend from heaven. The word descend means to to go or come down, to descend from a higher place to a lower place. And no doubt, this will happen suddenly, this will happen unexpectedly. We will begin a day just like any other day. We'll get up and do our morning routine, whatever your routine is. You'll brush your teeth, you'll go put the coffee pot on, you'll grab your newspaper, you'll turn on your morning news. Hopefully before you get too far into all of that, you'll stop and and read God's Word and have a time of prayer and what we call a quiet time. Maybe you're still working and you'll have to get to the office at a certain time or you'll have to time traffic just right and to, to get through traffic and, and uh, you'll, you'll just be going about a, a normal day. And then suddenly, as Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus descends from heaven. Second, we'll, we'll hear the sounds of the second coming. For the Lord Himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. There will be a shout, the voice of an archangel. Is that, uh, um, well, the archangel is actually unidentified. And the sound of a trumpet. And the shout will be a loud command given with authority. It just won't be a shout. It will be something folks understand. And there will be a tone of authority and a sound of authority that comes with it. Now, you've heard the expression, this is a wake-up call. Well, this is the literally ultimate wake-up call. These three sounds together will make the wake-up call of all wake-up calls. For those who sleep in Christ will rise up, meaning they'll wake up. And these sound effects will awaken those who sleep. They'll summon believers who are alive and maybe even warn those who do not know the day of the Lord is about to occur. But they'll be able to hear it. Joel the prophet wrote in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. The shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet sounding, are definite, specific indicators that the Lord has come for His followers. Third, those who have died in the Lord will be the first to rise. Verse 16, And the dead in Christ will rise first. The tail end of verse 16. This fact should have banished any of the Thessalonians' concerns about their deceased loved ones who knew Jesus. They... They, they, these, these deceased loved ones won't miss the excitement. They'll be the first to rise. They'll, they'll be on the front row 
of this thrilling moment and what comfort these words must have brought to these concerned Thessalonians who were so worried about their loved ones. Fourth, living believers will join resurrected saints and meet the Lord in the sky. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Interesting. Caught up. Underline that word caught up, however it's translated in your version. And meet the Lord in the sky. Can you even picture that? Think about that picture. Caught up and meet the Lord in the sky. What a picture. I, I always, as a child, wanted to fly. Did you? That was a childhood fantasy. I came up in the day when Superman was on TV and I'd get my blanket and my clothespin and wrap that cape around my neck and put an S on my shirt if I didn't have a Superman shirt, which I had at one point, uh, a real blue shirt with a, a symbol on there. And man, I'd run through the house like I was flying. I didn't know about carrying Lois Lane back in those days. I didn't do that. But uh, I'm so glad I didn't tempt gravity because that wouldn't have worked out too well. Go somewhere and jump off and, and think I could, could fly. But when Jesus comes back, if I'm still alive, I finally get to fly. Or at least I get caught up, however that works, to meet the Lord in the air. So will all other believers who are alive in that moment. Again, look at the word in verse 17, caught up. This, the, the Latin word that gives us this English word is rapto, which means to seize, to carry off. We get our English word rapture from this Latin word. Now sometimes we hear someone say, you can't find the word rapture in Scripture. Well, they forget their church history. The Latin Vulgate for centuries was the primary Bible translation used for 1,000 years preceding the Reformation. Leading up to the Reformation, the Bible was, was uh, finally in the process of being translated from Latin into languages of the common man by reformers like, like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and, and John Huss. So that's where we get the word rapture, which means caught up, which means to meet the Lord in the air. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest explains several meanings of this Greek word translated caught up in several ways that it's used in Scripture. I want to point some of these out to you if you'll have your fingers ready and, and try to turn to these passages with me for just a moment here. One way it's used in Scripture is found in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. So Acts chapter 8, verse 39, if you want to turn back there with me for just a second. And it's translated to catch away speedily. This is where the Spirit called away Philip after he had led the Ethiopian to Christ. So Acts chapter 8, verse 39 reads, Now when they came up out of the water, this is the baptism, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. So that's one way this, place, this, uh, this word is used in one of these places. And then John chapter 6, verse 15. You'll turn there with me. The word rapto is used to seize by force. 
Think of what it said here. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. This is only a guess. But I hope this usage doesn't mean that believers are so attached to this world and the things of this world that we have to be dragged away from this world, to be seized by force, that we got our fingers in the dirt clinging to the things of this world as, as we're caught up in the air with Jesus. It's like, wait, Jesus, hang on just a minute. Can I take my Herschel Walker autographed football with me? My Braves cap, my Braves... What about my baseball card collection? Also, it means to claim for oneself. This refers to the Lord's point of view as He comes to claim His bride, the church, to claim for, for oneself. It also means to move to a new place. Paul used this word when he described his visit to heaven in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 1 through 4. Mark that passage down. You can look it up and read it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. To move to a new place. But also, if you'll turn to Acts 23, 10, if you're trying to follow with me. Acts chapter 23, verse 10. It means to rescue from danger. One of the ways it's used is to rescue from danger. 23, verse 10 reads, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force, there it is, from among them and bring him into the barracks. So here's the bottom line. Whether we're alive or dead when Christ returns, all believers in Christ have the same hope of being caught up to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, that moment that He comes. Fourth, hope that brings comfort assures three promises. As we look at verse 17 and verse 18. There are three final words here that should have touched the Thessalonians' hearts and, 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 and given them peace and, and soothed their concerns and, and addressed their concerns and, and helped them at this moment of concern about their loved ones. And maybe they'll speak to us this morning too. Because I speak to any of us who have lost loved ones. First of all, we're promised a great reunion. Together with them in the clouds. If you know Christ and your loved ones know Christ, then one day we'll be together again. What a remarkable, wonderful promise. This is great timing. Today is the 28th anniversary of my dad's passing, 1993. And to think about the fact that one day we'll be together again. I look forward to seeing him again. I hope we get to watch the Braves together. I don't know how that works up there in heaven. We certainly enjoyed it here on this side of eternity. I look forward to meeting the grandfathers that I never knew. One who preceded, uh, who, who died when my mom was, was a teenager, her dad. The other one who died when I was one years old. I've got pictures of him holding me. 
Never knew them. But one day, we're promised a great reunion. Second, look in verses 17 and 18. We'll meet Jesus. The word meet carries the idea of meeting a royal person or an important person. We'll finally get to see Jesus face to face. And what a moment that will be. Hymn writer Fanny Crosby was blinded as an infant. You may know her story. She wrote the words to more than 8,000 hymns. She could not see physically, but Fanny had incredible spiritual vision. And once a pastor said to her, I think it's a great pity that the master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, did not give you the gift of sight. How would you respond to that? Crosby responded, Do you know that at birth, if I had been able to make one petition to my Creator, it would have been that I should have been born blind? And of course, the guy who said that, the pastor, was so surprised, he was so shocked at her response, he asked, Why? And she responded, Because when I get to heaven, the first sight that will ever gladden my eyes will be that of the Savior. Can you imagine? Third, Here's another great promise. We'll always be with the Lord. We'll always be with the Lord. This will be an everlasting meeting. Jesus is with us now. He's promised us His presence. But then we'll be with Him in another dimension. We'll be with Him in person. And Paul said, here are the final words, encourage one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Let these words soothe your hurting heart. Let these words minister to your grief. Let these words assure you because they come from God's Word. These aren't my words, Paul says. These are the words of the Lord. These are the words straight from God. So let these words bring encouragement to the fearful, certainty to the unsure, comfort to the grieving and the sorrowful. Let these words speak to you this morning. And let me share several takeaways. Live every moment with the expectation that Jesus could return at any time. When I was coming along, I don't remember if I was in a a children's Sunday school class, if I was in in a youth class, but a teacher said something that stuck with me and has stuck with me through the years. And that was, what if Jesus came back right now? What would he catch you doing? What if Jesus came back right now? Now, He knows because He sees us. His presence is with us. But what if He came back in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, like the Bible says He's going to? What would He catch you doing? Would He catch you being faithful? Would He catch you sinning? Would He catch you living for Him? Paul is emphasizing here living to please God. Also, continue in the context of 1 Thessalonians to resist a lifestyle of impurity and live a life that pleases God. Every moment of every day. We can't do that in our own power, can we? We have to depend upon the Lord. We have to walk by faith. We have to live in the strength of the Lord. We have to intentionally resist the the lures and temptations and snares of the devil and keep our eyes on the Lord as we walk by faith and not by sight and trust in Him day by day. Living for Jesus daily. Then live with hope and confidence because of the victory that Jesus gives over death. Then, if you have not done so, receive the free gift of eternal life right now. 
What happens after you die depends on what you decide before you die. So you've got this moment. Did you hear that? What happens to you after you die depends on what you decide before you die. So I encourage you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Where you spend eternity depends on whether you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior or you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. I heard about this inscription on a gravestone in a British cemetery. Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. Well, someone read that gravestone, and however they did it, they added these lines. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. (laughs) Folks, today Jesus invites you to follow him. He extends his hand to you. He says, I want to be your Savior. He says, I died for you because I love you so much. He says, I paid the price for your sin, and your sin no longer has to stand between my Heavenly Father and yourself. I am the way. I am the way to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. You simply have to recognize your need that you cannot earn your way to heaven, that you cannot live a good enough life, that you cannot, you cannot get to heaven any other way except through a personal relationship with me. So he invites you today to receive his free gift of eternal life by receiving him as Savior and inviting him to be your Savior and your Lord. And then if you're saved, he wants you to follow him in baptism. That's a step of obedience. We want to live a life of obedience that pleases God. If you're in another church and you're praying about joining this church, he wants you to make that decision. He doesn't want you to drift out there. He wants you to be part of a family of God that can encourage you and walk with you and hold you accountable and and, and help you serve him and equip you to serve him. He wants all of us who may be drifting in our spiritual walk, who may be too preoccupied with the things of this world, who may be... uh, Falling away instead of drawing closer, He wants us to come to Him and to seek Him and to live for Him. So what is your decision for Jesus today? If we can help you with your decision for Christ, reach out to us. If you're watching online, to this email address you see on your screen, we're here to help. We want to be of assistance. We want to help you any way that we can. So reach out to us today. If you're here in person... I'll be hanging around. Others will be hanging around. We'll look forward to talking to you soon about what it means to start a relationship with Jesus today. Father, we thank you so much for these promises that we've read about this morning. We thank you, Lord, so much for for the, the assurances that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is coming. And, Lord, that he's going to take us with him. And we're going to live with him forever and ever and ever. We pray, Lord, that if there are those here today who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that they will accept Him, that they will say yes to Him. And, Lord, if there are others who need to make decisions, like following through in baptism, Lord, that they will take that step that's pleasing to You. But, Lord, speak to our hearts. Comfort us with these words. Help us to be encouragers as we encourage one another. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.